0: think we should start. What do you think, everybody? We've got one minute to go, but you know, we're historians. We can be creative about time. (laughs) Uh, Welcome, everybody. My name is Dr. Kira Lindsay, and um, I'm a historian, a biographer, and I'm also an executive member of the History Council of New South Wales, which is why I'm here chairing this session today. I would like to start by acknowledging country, which is something um, that we do to remind us these days that we that what we do, where we meet, where we are, is unceded, sovereign Aboriginal land. This now everyday act of conscious history making is something that we at the History Council take very seriously because it provides us with us all with an opportunity to reflect upon the legacies of the past and to celebrate the fact that Aboriginal people, in this case the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, have not only survived but continue to thrive in myriad ways. So we acknowledge their resilience and we pay our respects to Elders past and present and we express our gratitude for the beautiful country and culture that they continue to share so generously with us. Well, isn't it wonderful to be here together in person at the State Library of New South Wales? live audience. Yippee! (laughs) This is a very long anticipated event for us at the History Council because it's in fact the very first in-person event that we had since we all spun off into cyberspace and got zoomed into another universe. But before we start today and talk about um, the history, the New South Wales History Premier Awards, I want to just say a few brief words about the History Council of New South Wales, which produces programs and services that build capacity within the history sector by showcasing the importance of history. We recently refreshed our mission statement, and here it is, (laughs) to fostering the practice of history in all its forms. This new statement serves to remind us that our remit extends across the diversity of mediums and methods of subjects and stories that we're going to discuss today. And it also expands across the entirety of New South Wales. We now at the History Council also belong to a co- cooperative of other history councils from Victoria, from South Australia, and from Western Australia. If this is a federation of history councils that works to promote and to advocate both for the value of history and for the work of historians. So this year, at the History Council of New South Wales, we have deepened our commitment to Indigenous histories and historians by securing funding for our first ever First Nations Project Officer. Likewise, we're extending our commitment into the regions by um, we've decided that we're going to host our annual history lecture in the uh, Central Tablelands region of Orange. And that will take place on Friday the 10th of September. So for any of you who fancy a weekend jaunt, jaunt out to the bush, we hope that you'll come and join us. We think it's going to be a fabulous event, particularly because it really will coincide quite perfectly with the theme for History Week this year, Drum roll! As you probably know, History Week happens in early September this year, and this year our theme is History from the Ground Up. After a year of tumult in 2020, we want to encourage new conversations about the kind of histories we need to heal the past and usher in fresh hope. We hope that this theme will encourage histories that can help us return to the roots and connect and care for one another and for our communities to become curious about the role of histories of place, environmental histories, and social histories, as well, of course, as histories from below. For those, we hope it will also inspire those of you who are interested in family histories, in biographies, in Indigenous histories, and in radical histories. After all, the word radical originally comes from the Latin for radix, which means root. So we're really looking forward to seeing how you get to the root um, in all sorts of juicy, new and exciting ways. As most of you probably already know, the New South Wales Premier's History Awards were first presented in 1997. And the purpose was to honour the distinguished achievements of history by Aboriginal citizens and permanent residents. Held each year, the awards assist in establishing the values and standards in historical research and publications, and encourage everyone to appreciate and to learn from history and the work of our wonderful historians. The winning pieces this year are very different from each other. Most are written, but we do have a fantastic audio production and another piece that employs superb visual storytelling techniques. The senior awards judge this year Associate Professor Tanya Evans admired the fact that the winners this year each demonstrate in their own way the originality, boldness and tenacity that is required to undertake historical research in Australia. And in so doing, they have shared with us the significance of their discoveries and how this relates to contemporary life. Today my role is to introduce each of the speakers, or each of the authors, and to then invite them to tell you a little bit more about their work. After each winner has spoken, I will have a question at the end after they've all spoken together, so they'll all speak and then I'm going to have ask one question and then I'll open up floor to you to ask a few questions and then we'll wrap up with a question. I'll just ask that you put your mobile phones onto um, aeroplane or completely off, no buzzing and ringing while there's genius in the room. (laughs) So five wonderful authors and five brilliant examples of contemporary history making. With no more than ten minutes each, we're going to find out more about your passion, your processes and the end products. Our first speaker is Callum Clayton Dixon. Callum is an Aboriginal linguist and historian whose people come from the southern end of the New England Tablelands in New South Wales around Walcha and Walbrook of the Inglebar Aboriginal Reserve and that is Ambien country. Callum won the New South Wales Regional and Community History Prize for his book entitled Surviving New England, a History of Aboriginal Resistance and Resilience Through the First 40 Years of Colonial Apocalypse. The judges admired Callum's close attention to the complexities of cross-cultural contact and to reading the colonial archive against the grain in ways that uncovered the story of the Anawan on their own terms and also remembered the story of frontier violence as one in which his people repeatedly exercised agency, acumen and adaptability. Please welcome Callum.
1: Uh, So, yeah, my people come from the southern end of the New England Tableland uh, around Woolbrook, Walker, and the Inglebar Aboriginal Reserve where my grandfather grew up in the 1940s. Um, Surviving New England um, wasn't a book that I thought of um, of writing uh, as a book, I guess. Uh, It came out of um, another, I guess, strain of research uh, that I've been undertaking over the last, I think, since about 2015, uh, into our, our long-dormant language of southern New England, Aniwan, Ambayang, Radun, Inawan, and... Sorry, Ambayang, Aniwan, Radun, Yaniwan, and Aniwan, the five dialects of the language now most commonly referred to as Aniwan. Um, And one of the common questions we would get um, with regards to the process of language revival is why is your language uh, so much worse off, say, than uh, languages on the coast like Gumbangir, Dangati, uh, Kimilaroi, out west, um, these other languages around us that have remained a lot more intact uh, and in some cases still have speakers um, or have had speakers up until very recently whereas our language uh, fell dormant around the mid-20th century. Um, and so in my research, I thought, OK, we need to have a bit of a look into as to why this is the case. Um, so I started looking at uh, histories of the New England region, uh, articles that have been written about uh, early uh, the early years of the colonial occupation. Um, and what I found was that, uh, I guess that our, people, our people's story uh, of survival and resistance through that early period had only been, I guess, touched on um, briefly, relatively briefly, in most cases um, in local history books. Um, our story was only ever a, uh, a fragment or a component of a larger narrative about um, the emergence of, say, the New England pastoral industry um, or the establishment of uh, New England's towns like Armidale. Um, So that was one of the reasons that led me to um, producing Survive in New England. And the other one was a number of conversations that I had with members of my family, um, including one of my uncles, uh, Bill Witters. Um, And he he said to me on one occasion, I want to know that uh, our people, that my ancestors um, didn't just lay down and die, that they fought back. Like we always hear about Geronimo and Sitting Bull and the Maori over in Aotearoa um, who put up these big fights and Pemawe down in the Sydney region uh, who put up these big fights uh, against um, colonial invasion and occupation. What about our people here in the New England? And so I guess those were two of the main factors that led me to um, do the research and writing for Surviving New England and so that set me on a path of trawling through the archives for every piece of evidence um, that I could possibly find uh, that related to the war of resistance that our people waged uh, from 1832 when the first squatter drove his sheep up onto the table and around Walker uh, all the way until the mid-1860s. Um, and the book isn't just about... Uh, the warfare, the, the, the frontier conflict uh, and the massacres and all that sort of thing um, that took place over that 40-year period uh, from the 1830s through to the 1860s. It looks at a lot of other kind of intersecting um, uh, topics and areas uh, such as um, population decline um, and the way in which New England um, as opposed to, or in, compar- uh, in contrast to, say, the Maclay River District, uh, the Guida River, the Liverpool Plains districts out west, the, Mac- um, the Clarence, uh, how these other districts that are surrounding New England um, had a far uh, slower and lower rate of uh, influx of colonists and livestock into those, region, uh, into those regions uh, as compared to New England. So, in New England, after just ten years of the colonial occupation, from the from the year that Hamilton Collins Semple drove his stock up onto um, the Tableland near Walker, within just ten years there was uh, five hundred thousand sheep on the Tableland, um, and within thirty years that was well over a million. Um, within just within just, I think it was about ten years, uh, at the Aboriginal population of New England. Um, was rivalled by, if not exceeded, by the number of um, colonists in the region. Um, so looking at how... Um, and the other than, I guess that links back into how uh, the process of language decline um, transpired. So within, within 30 years, for every one Aboriginal person in New England, there was about 15 white people well over a million sheep, a few hundred thousand cattle, uh, native food resources absolutely decimated, depleted, uh, people either forced to become refugees in the Rough Gorge country where they would be eventually driven out by the native police, um, forced to become fringe dwellers on the edges of um, developing um, settlements like Armidale and Walker. Um, or people were forced onto stations to work for a uh, majority of the time for rations so the more and more contact that that Aboriginal people on the tableland had with um, white people, by virtue of the circumstances created by colonisation, the faster language was lost, because up on the tableland, very few colonists bothered to learn the local language, um, and that was a massive contributor to the process of language decline. So by the turn of the... So about 1899, 1900, there was a letter written into um, the so there was a um, circular sent back to the Royal Anthropological Society of Australasia saying that, uh, uh, from Urala, saying that um, the young young Aboriginal people that are still left in the area don't know anything of their dialects, uh, of their ancestors, their forefathers' dialects. Um, So we're seeing, that's over 120 years ago, that those kinds of comments were being made by colonial officials. Um, So by the... By 1963, when um, a linguist came up from, uh, or commissioned by the uh, Australian, was it, IATSIS in Canberra, um, Christopher Court, he did a survey of New England, interviewed and went and met with over 50 different Aboriginal people who were suggested as uh, potential informants on the Ineowin language. Only four of them were able to give any language material at all. And between them, there was only about uh, 40 words, 30 to 40 Aneowin words mixed in with words from other languages. Um, so, yeah, our language has been dormant for, for say, 70, 80 years. Uh, and that process of um, language decline into dormancy began long before the protection era um, commenced in the 1880s and 1890s. Uh, Because people often think, oh, the languages were lost or languages went into, uh, fell asleep or were forced into dormancy um, during the protection era and the welfare board era. But in the case of our language, it happened, and potentially others, I'd guess, um, that started happening way back in the early colonial occupation. So there's kind of two, those two um, narratives about the colonial occupation um, and our people's Uh, resistance, fierce resistance and story of survival through those early uh, decades of the colonial occupation and that story of language decline into dormancy um, and now revival um, are very, very closely um, intertwined. Um, So I think that was kind of a guiding guiding factor and influence when writing Surviving New England, along with wanting to tell our people's story um, of fierce resistance um, that lasted for 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 well over three decades into the 1860s where you had uh, bands of heavily armed Aboriginal warriors made up of a, a coalition of tribes from the Tableland, from the Clarence River, the Bellinger um, and the Maclay uh, going around with large stockpiles of firearms acquired from uh, settlers down on the coast who were paying um, Aboriginal people down there with... Guns and ammunition. Um, our people stockpiled and utilised those uh, guns in a uh, revived resistance that took off in the late 1850s and into the 1860s. So that fierce resistance persisted for more than uh, 30 years.